Welcome to season three of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened, and reviewed the episode. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Richard Ingersoll is the leading expert in America's teaching force. He examines teaching as a job, teachers as employers, and schools as workplaces. He frequently presents information to policymakers at the national, state, and local level. Richard's research is internationally recognized. He was cited by President Clinton in a number of speeches announcing his teacher recruitment and training initiatives, and President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. He has published over 100 articles, reports, chapters, and essays on topics such as the management and organization of schools, accountability and control in schools, and teacher supply, demand, shortages, and turnover. In this wide-ranging discussion, we talked about many things, including the importance of reading great fiction and why authors John Goldsworthy and Kingsley William Amos have had such an impact on his life, why every American president since President Eisenhower has made a speech about teacher shortages, why he believed that there isn't really a teacher shortage in America, rather it's a retention and turnover issue, the importance of challenging convention and assumptions with empirical and quantitative data, and the role of management, organization, and school culture. Professor Ingersoll was a delight to interview and his body and scope of work is simply breathtaking. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Professor Ingersoll, well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a privilege to, uh, to be speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Can I uh, ask, uh, what is your coffee order? Probably the most important question of the interview. I'm, I've got a cup of um, Green Mountain medium roast. So that's helping me, you know, focus. Fantastic. It's uh, and and whereabouts are you uh, are you speaking from this morning? I'm in my home office. <laughs> I'm not on the campus of the university. With the pandemic, we've mostly been working at home, and so I sort of have it set up here. And I go into campus every once in a while, but yeah, this is at home, and and you can see, you know, my stuff in the background here, a bureau and whatnot, and. Yeah. I mean, I've even done television interviews and I say, well, isn't that too busy? And they said, no, we like that. So, yeah, I think it brings a, uh, a sense of authenticity. I mean, you're currently staring at my, at my back wall in my apartment, but if I was to turn the computer around, you'll see the chaos of my children. So it's, uh, it, it just is what it is during these unprecedented times, I think. Yeah. Uh, can I ask, uh, what is your, what's your favorite book? So it can be one outside of education. It can be in one... Uh, What's a book that you've read that you think, yeah, that's really had an impact on my life? Well, impact, I mean, I'm a fan of 20th century British English literature. So this is hey. fiction. Fantastic. And I love uh, John Galsworthy, for instance. So that's not nonfiction, that's not education, that's not research, that's just great storytelling. I, I see think the British authors know how to tell stories. They're really good. 
that, that's so true. Do you, do you feel that uh, reading fiction activates a, another part of your brain, obviously spending so much of your time reading uh, research papers? Do you uh, do you enjoy uh, reading another type of literature? Yeah, because it's not work. Yeah. When I read research, that's work. Yeah. And I have to study it and understand it and take notes and get the major thesis. And that takes a certain kind of effort, whereas the fiction is much different. Yeah. But it's not light necessarily. The British authors are so deep in their understanding of people and society as Callsworthy is just remarkable. I think they actually know more about human psychology than all the academic psychologists. But, you know, not to denigrate my psychologist colleagues, but yeah. anyhow, so. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I I was um, I'm a fellow uh, a fellow Brit. Um, I was born um, over in the Midlands in a place called Nottingham, and I remember being surrounded by this incredibly rich um, culture and literature. And it was a, a really beautiful place to be uh, to to uh, to be brought up. And it's lovely to see that um, uh, the appreciation of such incredible writing has extended far beyond uh, far beyond the uh, English shores. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have a buddy who's a professor of literature, and he and he specializes in um, British literature. And so he, you know, he'll give me a list. He'll say, oh, "Okay, you ought to turn to these groups now: Evelyn Waugh, Kingsley Amos, etc." So he kind of steers me. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh, Richard, I was just wondering, uh, what was your experience um, at school like? Uh, were you what sort of student were you? very academically inclined. I was a good student. Yeah. And, um, and then later became a uh, school teacher. Yeah. And the traditional research in the US shows that those who become teachers are often those who did well as students. And then they kind of replicate how their favorite teachers taught. So there's sort of a model, whether that's still true, who knows, but kind of this idea. And so I was a good student and I was a good student in the university also. Yeah. And um, Richard, there's, I mean, your body of uh, work is just um, astounding. There's, you've written so many articles, so many publications. Um, we couldn't possibly cover all of that in our, a short discussion today, but um, essential uh, to your work is, um, has been the, fo uh, the fo sorry, the focus on teacher attrition. And could you maybe share about how your perspective and understanding of this issue um, has changed over time? Well, I first, I first got interested in the whole idea that we have teacher shortages, which it turns out is a perennial theme in the US uh, coming from the academic world and also the policy world. One of my doctor students discovered that almost every president since Eisenhower, so that's right after World War II, at one point or another gave a speech on teacher shortages. Wow. So, and, and I, they seem to make sense. I uh, start to explore all that, but the more I looked, the more I found that the, the whole conventional wisdom just doesn't hold up. Yeah. It's been around for decades, different versions of it, but it doesn't hold up. I mean, the idea is we don't produce enough teachers. You know, there's increase in teacher retirements, increase in student uh, enrollments, and we simply don't produce, produce enough teachers. We have shortages. Hence, we have all these different strategies, some of which involve lowering the bar, widening the gate to make it easier for people to get in. 
there's bonuses. And it turns out, yeah, there's schools out there that have trouble filling their positions, but it has nothing to do with an undersupply. We produce more than enough teachers, even in math and science. It's because there's too much teacher turnover, too much quitting long before retirement. So that's how I kind of backed into the whole idea of teacher turnover, teacher attrition, people leaving their schools, people leaving the occupation altogether. I started to discover that. And then I developed this, this counter hypothesis that we don't really have shortages. This is 20 years ago. And you know, you know that it's not that we make too few teachers, that we, is that we, it's that we lose too many. Mm-hmm. And when I first published this, this was a very controversial, I, I was attacked on many fronts. <laughs> you know, that when you go against a conventional wisdom, you need to have a thick skin. Yeah. And the data were there. And now what's happened is I, I've watched this happen where there's been far more recognition of the problem of turnover and attrition in teaching. It's, it's a high quit line of work. And for instance, far higher than say professors, even higher than nurses. And so there's been a growing recognition of that problem. And of course, it's not all, not all turnover and quitting is bad. I mean, if you, if you have a low quality teacher, you actually like them to move on. Yeah. You know, that's maybe good turnover and you want fresh blood coming in, but high levels are not cost free. So that's how I came upon the whole issue of turnover and attrition and then started looking at how does it differ amongst types of teachers? How does it differ amongst types of schools? What are the pros and cons, the benefits and costs? you know, what drives it and sort of this whole, and then, and how to address it. Yeah. So I've done an awful lot of work. That's just one stream of my work, but an awful lot on, on the whole teacher turnover issue. Yeah. And what do you think that um, educational communities can do better um, to address this issue? What, I mean, obviously you're talking from a US perspective, but um, are these, um, uh, from your research, have you found that there are commonalities between different education systems in, uh, in other countries? Or um, uh, what's your view on that? Is this just an American issue or is it a much broader issue than that? Well, that's a good question. And there are some cross-national, some comparative data. I'm not an expert on those, although I see you have a quote here. Looks like from Tom Smith, maybe. I'm not quite sure. I believe it's from uh, uh, Bruce Johnson talking about conditions that support early career teacher resilience. Right. Um, and and the, the statistics seem to be quite similar to some of the work that I've written from you. Between 25 and 40% of beginning teachers are likely to leave the profession in the first yeah. five years. And I noticed that's Ewing especially. So yeah. I know there's some OECD data. And uh, so clearly there's other nations that have teacher turnover problems, although it's not, it's not universal by any means. My focus is on the US and kind of, you know, the whys and the, you know, the, the, both the diagnosis and the prescription, so to speak, how to, you know, why and then how to address it. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I know that recently you've been studying uh, the attrition rate of teachers of color. Um, how do you think that this demographic is an outlier and what do you think we can do um, uh, to address these issues? Yes, a few years ago, we got 
started examining the national data on the minority teacher shortage, yeah. and shortage of teachers of color, which is a huge ongoing policy concern in the US. You know the argument, which is the nation is getting more racially, ethnically diverse and the student population is, but the teaching force hasn't kept pace with yeah. that. Yeah, We have this shortage of teachers of color, of minority teachers, and generally the conventional wisdom is that we have an undersupply. Again, like the, like the general narrative on teacher shortages, you know, we don't, we need, to, we need to do a better job of recruiting minority teachers. So one of the things, like so much educational issues in this country, I, we discovered that lots of talk, very little solid empirical research and data. And that's, that's an opportunity for someone like me. And in this case, bring in quantitative national data. So, okay, how has it changed? You know, the numbers of minority teachers, has it gone up or down? Simple questions like that, that no one had answered, you know, yeah. and, and where are these teachers employed? And uh, is there insufficient numbers? And what about their turnover? And what we discovered is that there'd been a huge increase. This is under-recognized increase in the numbers of minority teachers. We don't have parity. The percentage of students that are minority is much greater than the percentage of teachers are minority in the US, but we've actually had a huge victory. There's been a, there's been a rapid diversification of the teaching force. And it's all the more remarkable because this is back to your original question. Minority teachers quit at significantly higher rates than do non-minority teachers, white teachers. And gosh, there's been gains in spite of this. So why the high quit rates? It comes down to the conditions, the work environment in those schools. Is it a place that's a nice place to work in? And minority teachers are um, overwhelmingly employed in large urban, low-income, disadvantaged school districts which for good or bad, the jobs are rougher and tougher, the pay is lower, the conditions and the resources aren't as good, et cetera. And, uh, and so large numbers of teachers quit those places. And since minority teachers are disproportionately employed there, that accounts for their high quit rates. And then we tried to drill down, well, what about the schools is most correlated with the likelihood of a minority teacher getting out? And it's interesting, it's lots of things are correlated, but the main things are how much voice, how much say do the teachers, do the faculty have into the key decisions in the building that impact us teachers? And the second one related is how much discretion and leeway can I have in my classroom? In the US, we have this trend towards centralized standardized curriculum. Let's have all the 10th grade math classes across the school district, the teacher teaching from the same text to the same test, the same materials, etc. There's something to be said for that. On the other hand, the typical teacher response would be, look, my students are different and I'm an expert and I'm the one working with them. So, you know, hold me accountable, but don't micromanage me don't tell me how to get from A to B. You know, don't, don't insist that I use textbook A when my experience is textbook A doesn't work with my students. 
this is the issue of discretion that, of course, professionals have. You know, professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers, et cetera, have a lot of discretion. They're the experts and teachers often don't. And it turns out this is the main factor driving minority teachers out of schools. Do, do you think that's fixable? That doesn't take money yeah. to fix. That's management. Yeah. Do you think there is a um, sort of an assumed incompetence with with teachers? Do you think that there's a reason why that um, why it is so overregulated? Yeah. You're asking a great question, and I think that assumption's in there that teachers and teaching is not a well-respected, well-regarded line of work in the US. It never has been. And uh, top students in colleges and universities tend to not go into teaching. It's not as well-paid. It's, at my university, there's, no, the students wanna become doctors, lawyers, professors, engineers, accountants, et cetera. Very few uh, of those wanna go into teaching. And so there is that idea that, gosh, we need to micromanage these people, you know, and so there's a whole assumption that, yes. Uh, so that is part of it. And to be fair, if you have a standardized set consistent curriculum, that probably helps the weaker teachers, the newer teachers who, are sort of confused what to do. If you lay it out, here's what you do. You're And this week, you're in this chapter. And here's the quizzes and tests done for you. That actually might help your lower performance teachers and might help them to get better. On the other hand, if you're an experienced teacher who knows what you're doing, this is an affront to have some bureaucracy come in and order you around when you know, I've been doing this 15 years and I know what I, I know what I'm doing kind of argument. So, you know, but there is maybe the assumption that everybody's weak. And so we're going to do a one size fits all standardization. Yeah. Um, Richard, for those people that are not uh, familiar with how the U.S. Uh, education system is structured and organized. Um, and once again, this is quite a broad question. Would you be able to just uh, talk to us about uh, the uh consistent standards, whether it's in terms of curriculum implementation or policies in schools, are states allowed to do, are they allowed to interpret a national curriculum for their own means or, or how does that work? And basically this question is for me to further understand uh, how it is structured in the United States, because in Australia, even though uh, we have a very, um, a lot, we have a less obviously less states and territories um, than you have in the United States um, and we seem to have issues with consistency so how does this work in the United States? The United States is unusual in this regard that from the beginning uh, the nation did not want central federal control of education. I think it went back to some sort of fear of central government this goes back to our revolution and when the nation was founded. And there's this idea that we don't want some big bad government controlling the schooling of our children. And so from the beginning, I mean, there's nothing in the constitution, for instance, that allows the federal government to have a presence in education. So from the beginning, it was delegated to the states. And when the public school system was founded, that is universal tax paid 
uh, education for everybody. This is, uh, you know, over 100 years ago. These some 15,000 school districts, we call them, were set up. And each one of these was autonomous. Yes, there was some state regulations and controls and some state funding, but it's a very decentralized system. You have these school districts, the Philadelphia school district, the suburban school district that I'm now living in. And they did their own hiring. They raised their own revenue through something called local property taxes. They did their own curriculum, et cetera. So from the beginning, it was unusual. We never had a national curriculum. We never had national standards for teachers. We never had national um, standards for revenue. Some places where the property's worth more, those districts could get an awful lot more money than poorer places where the property was, I mean, this is sort of the pros and cons of getting yes. your money through something called a property tax. So yes. we're unusual, we're decentralized. And so it's very mixed. It varies dramatically. It varies dramatically what the curriculum is. It varies dramatically what the resources are, what teachers are paid, how teachers are hired, the credentialing standards. Now, there's been an awful lot of criticism of this, this hodgepodge system. And so there's been a growing federal centralizing presence over the last, say, 40 years. And the federal US Department of Education has grown, but still, most of the money comes in states and local school districts. The biggest centralizing influence was something called the No Child Left Behind Act, yeah. which was an attempt to have national standards. And it was bipartisan. It was both Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives that, geez, it's so hodgepodge and there's so much inconsistency and often there's such low standards. Let's, let's agree to some kind of national framework. And, you know, that had very mixed, and there was a lot of accountability, there was a lot of testing. You know, if you want to graduate from high school now, we want you to have to pass a test. We'll let each state come up with its own test. So, so we're unusual. There's been pushback and change to that. But to this day, education, this is K through 12, elementary, secondary education in the U.S. is still relatively decentralized. So, you know, it's very different. Teachers yeah. are paid really differently. You can, you can move around because, gosh, if I move to that state, I can make $15,000 more every year. Does that, um, does that encourage uh, teachers to move out of uh, more challenging school districts and go to areas where they can be paid more? And does that leave a vacuum within um, arguably these schools that require the most skilled and expertise teachers to be teaching in? That's precisely what we have. And we've quantified this. So there's so along with people, along with teachers quitting teaching altogether, we have an awful lot of movers. We call it migration between schools and districts. And so, for instance, the flow of teachers, and this is usually in the summer after the school year's over, the flow of teachers from low-income, poor schools and school districts to high income is 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 four times the reverse. Wow. So it's what we call asymmetric. There's this huge shifting of the teaching force at the end of every school year, and there's winners and losers. Absolutely. And pay is a big factor here. But back to these working conditions. You know, if you're a good teacher, you don't want to be micromanaged, and you want to go to a place where you're treated more like a professional. And so 
The end result is that we have what we call maldistribution of teacher quality. That is, the quality and qualifications of teachers varies dramatically across locations. And some places, the students just get far better teachers, whatever measure you use. And some places get lower quality. And part of that's driven by this annual uh, reshifting of large chunks of this very large teaching force. Yeah, it's um, uh, Richard is absolutely fascinating. It, it seems like such a complex issue, and I think what are um, what are some of the elements? Because there are of course so many wonderful teachers in classrooms every single day that are doing incredible jobs to educate and to motivate and to teach their students. What do you think some of those elements are um, of great teachers? And uh, what? Uh, and another question as well. What do you think can be done um, to better equip all teachers before they go into the classroom? At, sorry, that's at the university level, the college level. Those are two great questions. I think the first one, if I'm understanding correctly, is what are the elements, the characteristics of a good teacher? Yeah. And the second one is what's the education and preparation we should have these people undergo before they get into the classroom? Absolutely. Yeah. Both of those questions, there's absolutely no consensus on whatsoever. <laughs> so the first one. One argument is let's get the best and the brightest. Let's get top college students that, you know, sort of brain power makes the good teacher. Other people argue, well, no, we want people that are engaged to like children. You know, there's a whole debate there. And then how do you know any of this? I mean, if you're hiring, how would you be able to ascertain these things? And then on the second question, the issue of how to, what's the best way to build a teacher? You know, what's the, what's the kind of, training, preparation, education we should require. That's a whole debate and argument, often bitter. So two, two different um, positions go like this. One is that the good teacher is someone who knows their material. They have subject matter knowledge. We want, we want a math teacher who actually got a college major, a college degree in mathematics. That's what we want. And that if they know the material, that'll make them a good teacher. The opposing view is, well, no, subject matter might be important, but really we want people who are good at communicating, good at explaining, good at teaching, the pedagogical and the methodological skills. This debate goes back and forth. Do we want people that could teach anything well, or do we want a subject matter expertise? Now, of course, lots of people say, well, let's get both. But then that takes more time. So do we want to do, do we want to have future teachers have a degree in the subject, have a degree in history, English, math, uh, physics, plus get all the ped pedagogical and methodological preparation? Yeah, can we fit that into a four-year degree? Oh, do we need to have extra time? Well, if we have extra time, they're going to do the calculus. We've got to pay them more, you know. <laughs> If the, if the process to get into a line of work is longer and more rigorous, the people, people aren't gonna do it. College students aren't gonna do it unless the pay is commensurate. So, you know, yeah. And so students don't mind doing three years of law school because they know when they come out, they're gonna have a good salary as a lawyer. And that's a problem with teaching in the US. 
Yeah, and my understanding was, uh, sorry, I was looking at a, um, a PBS uh, video, um, sorry, an interview with you a little while ago, and it was saying that the starting salary in the US uh, for teachers is about $35,000 a year, which seems, um, I'm not sure what the cost of living uh, is um, in those particular areas, but it seems incredibly low. Um, is it disproportionately lower than other professions or? Um, yeah, yes. We, yes. Yes, and we have comparative data where we look at the starting salary of teachers and accountants and lawyers, et cetera. And it's, it's certainly lower than those traditional and established professions. Yeah. You know, lawyers, doctors, professors, accountants, engineers, et cetera. It's lower than those. Uh, obviously, there's some lines of work that pay less than teachers, uh, you know, manual labor and whatnot. So, but it's, it's relatively low paid for those with a college degree. And lots of teachers now in the U.S. a significant portion get a graduate degree, a master's degree. So, yeah. so no, it the salaries are not a great recruiting point because on average they're lower. But back to my earlier point that there's very large variations. In some places, the starting salary is much better than other places. And yeah. of course, there's differences of cost of living. If you if you live in New York City or Los Angeles. It's very expensive to get an apartment and that teacher salary doesn't go very far. So yes, this is a problem. It's also a problem to raise those salaries. Back to my earlier discussion about where's the revenue, where's the money come from? Local property taxes is a major source and also state, state budgets and raising local property taxes is an uphill fight. Citizens no. don't want that. It's not a good election uh, <laughs> campaign, is it? If, if you're the head of the school board and you propose to raise local property taxes, you'll probably be voted out yeah. next, next time around. And states are often, uh, the budgets are a huge fight and there's all kinds of unfunded mandates. And so it's raising the teacher salaries is, in one sense, it's a no-brainer. It's not very well paid. Everyone knows you're not going to get top people, or, or you're not going to get as many top people. On the other hand, it's not an easy. It's not easy to raise those salaries. It's a very large workforce. Yeah, and thought what was particularly interesting uh, in the PBS interview uh, that you did was uh, some of the discussions with students that had they had basically. Um, surrendered to the fact that they would ever have a good paying job but they were going into teaching because they wanted to make a difference with our students and I think it's it's a bit of a shame that some of these people that are incredibly passionate about making a difference in in the lives of young people um, have to uh, make that compromise of maybe not being able to uh, support themselves financially uh, it seems uh, quite uh, quite challenging yeah absolutely and in fact the economists refer to that as wage sacrifice opportunities foregone that you make the decision, gosh, I want to do this. I want to make a contribution. And all right, I'm not going to make as much money. <clears throat> you go into it with that attitude. Yeah. Of course, um, then, then later you get a mortgage and you have debt and whatnot, and it's less palatable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really, really complex, a complex um, uh, issue, Richard. Thank you so much for explaining what it's like over in the U.S. 
Um, what are you, uh, obviously with your, your role with the University of Pennsylvania, what are you most proud of the work that you're doing there? What are some of the things that you're doing um, uh, that, you, uh, that you are really proud of? One of the lines of work I do looks at the issue of how schools are organized and structured and managed, particularly on this issue I mentioned earlier about um, who makes the decisions and in particular, how much say and input and voice do the faculty, do the teachers have in decision-making? When I originally got my PhD, I majored in a field called organization theory and organization studies where it's people often in business schools study the structure of organizations, whether it's corporations or banks or universities or schools. And I took those lenses and tried to shine it on uh, elementary and high schools and sort of what's the structure, what's the hierarchy, to what extent is the, is the decision-making you know, up top or pushed down below. And I wrote a whole, published a whole book on this where I had a lot of data, sort of how much say do teachers have how does it vary across types of teachers? How does it vary across types of schools? And does it make any difference? I mean, in a building in which it's more collegial and decision and teachers have input into decisions, you know, does it, does it show up in better outcomes, for instance, sort of thing? Does it lead to a more satisfied teaching force? Is it correlated with student test scores and achievements? So that's a whole project I've done it came out of my own personal biography because when I was a school teacher, I was always appalled at how little input we had. I mean, basically we were told what to do. And if you didn't like it, you were told to get out. I mean, it's, it was, I was kind of shocked at the top-down model that completely ignored that maybe teachers might actually have something to say here, something to add. I mean, after all, we're the ones working with the students. Yeah, absolutely. And you have this chain of command. And so I studied that done a lot of research and it turns out that schools vary dramatically in how much input teachers have and it makes a very big difference. Schools in which teachers uh, have more voice, have better test scores, have lower teacher turnover, have greater teacher job satisfaction, have less conflict between teachers and students. So I'm very proud of that, back to your question, very proud of that line of work and also it just goes back to my personal biography where I was sort of puzzled and appalled by the schools that I had jobs in and how they were run. Yeah, well, fantastic. And you're, uh, there is so much, um, like I said, uh, slowly working through your uh, published papers and um, uh, publications, there is so much there. So uh, for anyone that's listening to this, I would encourage you to, uh, to go to your um, a profile at the University of Pennsylvania because the your research is really quite extensive. There's a lot there. So uh, thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you. There is. I've been doing this 25 years and it's it's very much a labor of love. Yeah. Um, uh, Richard, just a few more questions. I mean, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Um, it's sure. uh, relatively early in the morning there, so I'm sure there's other things that you have to do. Um, uh, but it would be amiss of me uh, to ask, um, about the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic and what you think that has taught us about the role of schools and the role of teachers. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I feel like this is probably one of the biggest uh, shifts in education in my lifetime. Um, but what do you think uh, that pan this pandemic has taught us about the role of schools and teachers? 
Well, it's interesting because here in the States, there was a great deal of lockdown of schools. And so students, it, it became strictly remote education. Now, internet online classes. And of course this varied because we have both private schools and then the public school system and it varied across states, but there was an awful lot of lockdown. And it turned out that there has been an awful lot of problems with having solely or primarily remote online virtual classes. Picture it, I mean, particularly for young students in the primary grades, they're gonna spend five or six hours in front of a computer all day and they're gonna, you're gonna keep them engaged and they're gonna be motivated and learn. I mean, wow, you know, my heart goes out to teach. I mean, this is really a challenge. And, you know, it's engagement of the students is always the challenge in teaching. That's, that's, the, that's the goal and that's very difficult to do. And it seems like with remote education that just became enhanced and exacerbated, keeping engagement. And to me, one of the kind of lessons, maybe it hasn't come to full light is sort of the importance of having in-person instruction, the importance of the teachers, the importance of engagement, that we have thousands of experiments we've had over the last couple of decades in trying to, you know, um, using technology to revolutionize the classroom, you know, online and remote and all kinds of stuff that, you know, universities that, you know, don't have bricks and mortar, that it's all, you know, lots of experiments and those are promising. But to me, one of the lessons is, you're not gonna do away with the teacher. You're not gonna do away with in-person instruction. And the whole public has been crying out for this. It's, it's been a really difficult year. And uh, also at the higher ed level, I mean, teaching, you know, if I'm doing a three hour class with graduate students, master's level degree and doctoral degree, three, three hours is a lot, you know, it's just, it's not gonna work. And these are older, more motivated students. So you have to mix up the activities, you have to get engagement, you have to have debates, you have to get them talking. And so to me, I think it's been a really stressful year for the educational system. And I'm hoping there'll be some recognition, positive recognition of the importance of teachers coming out of this. I'm not sure because it's gotten to be a bitter fight. You know, on one side you get people criticizing teachers and criticizing the teacher unions that they've been in favor of the lockdowns and, and against in-person instruction. And the teachers, of course, would like to go back to it. But, you know, with COVID, I mean, would I feel comfortable, you know, last fall going into schools and being a high school teacher and teaching with, you know, 30 students every hour and no one's vaccinated? And, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky. I, that's tricky business to expose people to that. And I understand the arguments that kids rarely would contract COVID, et cetera. But I mean, teachers, I think there was some legitimacy to their fears. My guess is, this is just a guess, is that when this is all so, uh, done and the economy rebounds and we get past, hopefully get past the whole COVID thing, there's gonna be a huge increase in teacher turnover. I think a lot of people are stressed I think they're gonna start looking elsewhere. 
both moving between schools and districts and also getting out altogether. And the, the research shows us that in general, in down economic times, employees do not leave their jobs. This is regardless of the industry or whatever, the occupation. If there's not options out there, you're not gonna quit your job. If there's uncertainty in the economy, you're not gonna retire. And so my guess is there's a huge pent up. Next year, we're gonna see a big increase in teacher turnover. It's just my speculation because this has been such a stressful time. And maybe out of that, supply and demand, there'll be an increase in salary. Well, gosh, it's gonna be harder to get people. This is just a guess. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that. I think it is uh, such a, um, it, teaching is already such a complex profession. And I think what it has shown us um, in Australia, and I'm assuming quite similar to over in the States is that, um, it is a uh, it is a job that takes so much investment and so much time and so much in many ways so much sacrifice and my hope is that there will be um, that we will find new ways to support uh, recent teaching graduates and and to help um, help them to become the best teachers that they can be because I know that um, quite soon my children will be entering the school system um, and I want to make sure that there is a teacher there that is passionate that is um, uh, has professional expertise, has all of those soft skills that are able to talk and communicate with, with the children, but also um, that's doing the job because they really love what they do. And I think our role as educators is so precious and so significant um, that I think sometimes we forget amongst the messiness that we're actually there to make a difference in the lives of young people and children. And um, I think it's definitely the best job in the world um, from my point of view. So. Um, Richard, final uh, final question, um, then I will let you know, uh, let you go, sorry. Um, where can people find out more about you? The university has a web page for me and I can send you the link or the URL. And on that, there's information about me. There's also posted various videos when I've given talks. Maybe there's even that PBS interview I can't remember. There is, yes. <laughs> There's also links or PDF files for a lot of my things I've published over the years, all the way from you know, statistics heavy research articles uh, on the other extreme to you know, two page plain English commentaries for newspapers kind of explaining what the research tells us. So uh, lots of information for, for people you know, that's easily accessible on that. On that and you know, you'd be welcome to if, if you if you felt it was useful to post that link in your podcast or fantastic i, I guess that's what whatever Thank so you. yes that's where people can find out about me and and i and my email address is on there too Fantastic. Well, um, uh, Professor Ingersoll, thank you so much for taking the time today um I, I really do appreciate it and uh, all the best with um what you're currently working on enjoy the rest of your day yeah good luck matthew and you know, back to what you were saying a minute ago, I, you know, I, I'm a former high school teacher and that was the hardest job I ever had. And it's not that being a professor is easy, but I've done a lot of things. I was a carpenter and I was in the forestry industry and now I'm a professor and high school teacher is the most difficult job I ever had. And boy, we need to, you know, we need to improve 
sort of gain respect and appreciation and also pay for that line of work. Fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time. Thank you.